So, uh, man, we are elated that we have the opportunity um, to gather together. Um, I don't know about you, but hearing, hearing other people's voices when we sing, that's, that's something special. Uh, and again, you don't know how much you need something in your heart until it's gone. Um, and so one of the things that we talked about as we got going this morning was, like, let's, let's make every opportunity of the day. This is what the Lord has made for us. And so let's, let's be all here. Let's be fully present. Let's serve with the gusto and the power of the Spirit. Um, and let's do that even now as we enter into our sermon time. Um, like, I'm just loving this. And at the same time, I can only see the Ferguson's fuzzy figures back there. Hello, everyone back there. Um, and so that's all right. We'll make do with what we've got with this crazy, better, hopefully normal that we are uh, anticipating. So I don't know about you. But um, I've been anticipating this day for some time, and as I anticipated this day, it just brought me to my knees to ask the Lord, what is it that you want me to preach? What is it you want? What message do you want when we actually get back to regathering? Um, And I didn't know this, but the culture that we're in would seem to indicate that this is a needed message. Um, And here's what I know. Like, I don't know about you, but I sincerely believe that God is pushing the restart button, not just on our world and not just on our lives, but on our spiritual and religious rhythms. That I do believe, and as Isaiah 43 says, that God is doing a new thing. I hope you believe that as well. The question is, what is the new thing? And look, I'm not here to say that this is the only new thing that God is doing in these days. But I am saying that for us, perhaps we can hear this today as something specific that we need um, in the life of the Grove Church um, for this body in this new pace, in this new normal, in this new world that we're in, right? Of like awkward tensions of fist bumps or like whoever thought that if you were in 2019, And you thought to yourself, hey, we're going to be elbow bumping by June of next year. You would have thought to yourself, you're insane. Go back to your hole. Uh, But that's where we're at, right? We're like, the the next thing is like we're elbow bumping. Like that's a normal thing because it is normal in our new lives. Um, This thing has has happened upon us. Our world is totally different. Um, But I believe that God is, is removing some things from us that we valued, that we saw as highly important, that God is actually saying to us, not important at all. Um, I don't know about you, but like there are times in my spiritual life where I want to scotch tape uh, made up fruit onto the vine. Um, There are times in my life when I kind of look at my life and I go, no, that's fruit. And really it's not fruit. There are times when I just kind of, you know, make patchwork of my own spiritual life. And I think God is, is perhaps looking at the things that we've put on the vine, scotch taped onto the vine and going, that's actually doesn't belong here. And I think God is doing some of his most important purging and pruning of the vine. That's where the branches, right? Of the branches um, that he's ever done, at least in recent memory. And so since I believe that, I truly believe that as we move into this new world, um, that there's one thing that I want us to focus on this morning and as we move into the rest of 2020. And that's humility. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who are you, good sir, to preach on humility? I know you. To which I would say, Tim Burns, that's a little bit too much laughter out of you, buddy. (laughs) Little too much out of you, okay? But here's what I know. He knows me, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I feel you. Like, I feel uh, very much not qualified to preach on humility. uh, Because 
Um, if you're like me, and I, I'll just speak for myself, like, like pride and self-dependence is constantly at the heart of most of what I struggle with. Why do I burn out so easily? Because I'm dependent upon myself. Why do I get so easily frustrated? Because I think that people, or I, more than anything, should do some standard that's unattainable. Why do I overeat or overwork or whatever? It's because I've become the king of my own little domain. And that's, that's all rooted in pride. It's all rooted in a lack of humility. And so my hope that in order for us to, to truly be this people that God set us out to be some five and a half years ago as the Grove Church, for us to be a gospel-centered people, to be a people that not just affirm and believe sound doctrine, but believe and, and, and live out sound doctrine in our normal everyday lives. If we're going to become those types of people, we cannot do that without a heavy dose of humility. Now, if you're like me, you have already said to yourself, someone else needs to hear this message today. Friends, this is for us. This is for you. Uh, this is for me. Um, as I'm praying over here in preparation for preaching the message, Lord, Lord, let this hit me before it hits them. If it hasn't already, let this hit me before it hits anybody else. But if you struggle with pride, and I would dare say that all of us do on some level or another, uh, let me invite you to consider why pride has been said to be the mother of all sins. It is the sin which give birth, gives birth to all other sin. Again, why do we get angry or frustrated or overeat or overwork? Why do we accuse others before we stop to listen? Why, is, why do we have a driving frustration? What is driving anxiety and lust and greed and coveting and comparison and competition that is far too rampant in the church? What is driving all those things? Is it not pride? Is it not thinking of ourselves too highly? I would submit to us, yes, indeed it is. And so what do we do with that pride? Today's passage out of Proverbs 15 gives us insight into the gravity of pride. If you'll notice, there's these bookends of this passage that we talked through or that, that, that Amy read through. And I know that we were just a little distracted with the microphones. Um, and so I want to read uh, this passage one more time, okay? So we can kind of get an understanding that the bookends here are the important parts, and then the filling for us is certainly how it works out. So the book ends here of 15 of Proverbs, 25 to 33. Just pay, pay attention here to how this begins and how it ends. It says, The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. Whoever is greedy or unjust gain, or, or, for unjust gain troubles his own household. But he who hates, bri who hates bribes will live. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart. The good news refreshes the bones. The ear that listens to life-giving uh, life reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence intelligence. And now, as kind of this dovetail into last week's sermon, the fear of the Lord is the instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Are you seeing the bookends on pride and humility, that he will tear down the, the house of the proud, and he will honor those that are humble? 
Like, I think it's interesting that all throughout Scripture you see a God that is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, don't we? We see a God who is gracious and abounding in faithfulness, and yet he will tear down your house if it's foundation, if it's walls, if the paint job is pride. This is not an isolated text, nor is it an isolated posture from God. Instead, Isaiah 2.12 would say that the, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. See, God's posture on pride is sobering. On, in Amos, these are all the prophets, right? The, these are the, the angry guys in the Old Testament. They're telling Israel that they're off course. They need to humble themselves. They're headed for destruction. And so he's, they're constantly kind of on a megaphone just saying, this is what the Lord wants of you. Don't keep going in the direction that you're going. Repent, believe, trust. Of course they don't. It's no wonder that these messages are here in Amos 6, 8. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord. He doesn't swear by anybody else's name besides his own. It's the highest name that could ever be known. He says he swears by himself, declares the Lord. The God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I hate his strongholds. Man, that's strong language from our God. In Ezekiel 28, you see... Again, another prophet, you see um, the description of the fall of Satan. Does anybody know why Satan got kicked out of heaven? It wasn't because he was doing evil deeds in heaven. It's because he was beautiful. It's because he was, he, was, he was full of splendor. Like God had created him, the most beautiful creature there, there was. And what was so heinous in God's sight that got him excommunicated from heaven forever? He wanted glory verse 17 of Ezekiel 28, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And so I cast you to the earth. And friends, since he has been on the earth, he has been infecting us with the same disease from the get-go. That we too have this posture in us that whatever is good in us, we want to take credit for. This is in us. Um, like since Adam and Eve, right? This has been in them, it's been in us, and they've passed it down to us because, like for us, we have to understand why does God have such a posture, a strong posture that he will tear down the high places. He will bring down those that have exalted themselves. He hates the pride of Jacob. He kicks out his most beautiful creature. Could you imagine that? Why? Pride, friends, is rebellion unto ruin. Pride is rebellion unto ruin. God has been abundantly clear on the matter of pride and humility through the scriptures, but also through the saints throughout time. And so I've got a couple of different uh, quotes that I want to throw up for us because they were helpful for me in preparation. I pray they're helpful for you. Um, but here, here's one from C.S. Lewis. What is pride? Pride is severely disordered love for self. It is a severe disordering of a love for self. I want you to see something. It's not that there's no love for self. It's just disordered. It's out of order. Uh, St. Augustine in his confessions, um, who was a, a, a bishop in the early church in the fourth century, he said that he became proud when he looked at himself as fully grown, as mature. Not someone in the process of maturity, but mature. They've arrived. So that's what C.S. Lewis, that's what Augustine would say. There's another uh, famous theologian and, uh, and, and, and philosopher who would say this. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives. Like, I don't know about you, 
But that's, that's all I see. That's all I feel, that I'm competent to run my own life, to achieve our own sense of self-worth, and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. I don't know how those quotes hit you, but they hit me like a ton of bricks because when I look back at my weeks, whether in corona time or regular time, am I dependent upon God's purposes for my life? Am I dependent upon the Spirit's power in my life? Or am I just running ahead of Him? Am I in step with the Spirit? Am I kind of dancing with Him in life? Or am I just going, man, like, sit this one out, I got it. Sad to say, and I'll just like confess before all of you, it's much more the latter than the former. Pride is a severely disordered love for self. This is so obvious for us, isn't it? Like no one here would be like, I, I want to be more pride, prideful. Not as Christians, not as people that, that love Jesus and want to follow him. We wouldn't, none of us here that struggle with it would go, you know, I just need a little bit more confidence. No, we need, I just need a little bit more self-dependence. It's obvious when we say it out loud, and yet it's so deceitful that it becomes really not obvious at all. It becomes trickery, some crazy game that we have to kind of figure out of cat and mouse what's going on on a daily basis. Because, man, if, if, if pride is a drug, God's people are addicted. And it goes throughout all of history. I already mentioned Adam and Eve. It goes throughout all of history. You already see, you see, you see Genesis from the very beginning, Right? You see it in Exodus. What happens three days after Moses delivers the people of Israel through a dry seabed in the Red Sea and defeated the greatest army that ever was on the planet by that time without ever lifting a sword or a chariot or a bow or a spear. He defeated that army without ever doing any of that. And three days into their journey, what happens? Moses, you let us out here to die. I want to go back to Egypt. There's a comparison there. There's a grumbling there. There's an impatience there that can only be rooted in one thing. The rebellion that leads to ruin that is the pride in our hearts. Israel wouldn't stop there with a quick grumble against God and his people. When God called his people in Numbers, what is it, what, 14? Yeah, 13 and 14. When he calls his people to take the promised land. Yes, there's giants in the land. But look at this beautiful, abundant place that I have prepared for you. Now go. I'll give those people up to you. Yes, they're big. Yes, you're intimidated. But I'm bigger. And when he, he makes that plan known to them, what do they do? They go into the land. They spy out the land. They come back and they go, we can't do it. God's not with us. This isn't going to work. And what happens? My son is listening. That's helpful. Hey, bud. Thanks for talking back to me. And what happens, right? They, they get punished for 40 years in the wilderness. And when that punishment comes back, what do they do? I don't want that punishment. We'll go in. And so when God says to go in, they don't. And when God says to stay out, they go. Only pride deceives us into thinking that we can somehow earn God's favor by somehow being obedient after we've been disobedient. It's just this crazy game of deception. But when Israel finally gets to the promised land, they finally get to the place that God has promised them, their rebellion isn't over. They look at Samuel, the prophet, and they say, we want a king just like everybody else. We want to look like all the nations around us. And what does Samuel say to them? He says, look, if, the, if you get a king... Here's what they're going to do to you. They're going to 
Uh, well, it's somewhere in my notes. Look, look, they're gonna they're gonna take your best land. They're gonna tax you. They're gonna enlist your sons um, a, as instruments of war. They're gonna enlist your daughters as bakers. They're gonna take what you love and what you so value, and they're gonna use it for themselves. And then it says they're gonna enslave you. And you would think with such clarity they would go, you know what? My bad, bad idea. And what do they do? Yeah, yeah, we want that. We want it. We want to. Throw off God as our king, and we want a human to be our king. And friends, this is the heart of the pride that we all struggle with. We want to throw off Jesus as king. We want to throw off Jesus as Lord. We'll take him as savior, but if he has to get into my business, I'm not comfortable with that Jesus. I'll take him as the one who paid for my sin, but I don't want the one that will wiggle into my wallet that's, that's, that's the infection that the American church is dealing with right now. That all of life would be submitted to our king. That we're not supposed to look like the nations around us. We're supposed to be different. And what would make us different? That God is our king. But that takes an unbelievable humility to be able to submit to that kind of life, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. 1 Samuel 8, 7 says this, They have not rejected you, Samuel. This is God speaking. They have rejected me. You see, when we set ourselves up as king, when we set ourselves up as any other human authority, as the highest authority for our lives, and I want, I'm not going to go there. When we set up anything, any institution, any political system, any other document, any other person as the highest authority in our lives, we have shirked off the king of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus in our lives, and we have submitted ourselves to something different. Something lesser. Something that God is calling us is enslaving. So perhaps we need to have a heavy dose of humility, a heavy dose of, remind, of a reminder of God's posture towards the disease of pride in all of our hearts. We don't want it, but we need it. We may not understand how much we need it, but he continues to show us in the scriptures again and again. Come back to me. Repent of your sins. Follow me. Isn't that what the entire New Testament is all about? Isn't that what this passage is truly about? You ever notice what kings can't do? When you set yourself up as king, don't you take the posture of a king? Like, like Esther went into the, the presence of the king and was like, Oh, Lord, if, if this would so please you, let me put a request before you. Why did, she, why did she approach the king with such trepidation? Because kings will not be rebuked. They will not be, they will not be subject to reproof. They do what they want when they want it. And if we have the heart of a king, we will not submit ourselves to rebuke or reproof. That's what at least 32 would say. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. It's interesting because the New Testament picks this theme up. Because uh, as kings of our own lives, when we submit ourselves to our own human kingship of our own lives, we convince ourselves that no one else will take care of us. We convince ourselves that we're in this alone. We convince ourselves that God actually doesn't care about our needs. Isn't that kind of the, the underlying theme around 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Are these scriptures coming up behind me, by the way? No? That's all right. Perfect. Oh, I got, no, I got head nods. Perfect. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, right? What's the first thing he says? 
Humble yourselves. Now, we like seven, where it says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. You know what allows you to cast your anxieties on God because he cares for you? Humility, that we would not take on our care, uh, on our our own uh, uh, anxieties on our own. That we would be humbled enough to go, Lord, I need you to have this. I can't handle this. I need you to take this. When I think I can handle it, I get anxious and worried. Lord, take it. I submit to whatever result that you would have for me because you're the king. And if it fails, it fails by by your will. And if it succeeds, it succeeds by your will. But I would hate to succeed by my own will. That's casting our anxieties, our cares upon King Jesus after we've humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God. For it is mighty, church. It is not short It is not T-Rex arms like like Jesus doesn't have T-Rex arms. They are mighty and they are long reaching over every care that we could ever have. And they are attentive and they are tender and yet powerful. That's the heart of God. It's no wonder, it's no wonder that we can entitle this sermon and head into our, our next point of like, this is good news. There's such beauty and good news in being humbled people. There's such beauty and good news in humility. Read with me verses 30 to 33. The light of the eyes rejoices in the heart. And the good news, that's the gospel. And the gospel refreshes the bones. The good news. The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. There is good news in humility. There is a thing that is uh, known as gospel humility. The humility that's driven by the gospel is not just enough to, to take on understanding of pride and humility, but certainly to have a humility that is centered around the gospel. Timothy Keller, who is known for his gospel centrality, would say this about gospel humility for us. He says this, gospel humility is not thinking more of myself. It is also not thinking less of myself. Instead, it is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility happens in our lives when we, like, remove ourselves from the center. Well, what would I do in that situation? Doesn't matter. But what I have done in that situation doesn't matter. You know, I would never treat you the way that you treated me. Doesn't matter. I would never do that. Doesn't matter. Gospel humility takes us out of the center and put God at the center. And it's no wonder that we can be gospel humble people based on the good news, the gospel itself. See, the, there is a real gift in not being prideful, self-confident, self-assured, secure. How so? Because gospel, the gospel brings humility before honor. The gospel brings us low before exalting us high. And you may say to yourself, how does that happen? Does not the gospel in Ephesians 2 say that we were dead? Does not the gospel in Colossians 1 say that we were God's enemies? Does not the gospel say in Romans 3 that we were altogether bad, no one was good? Does not the gospel say in Ephesians 2, 12 that we were far off, we were alienated, we were excluded from the promises and the covenants of God? We couldn't even do one thing, Isaiah would say, uh, even if we thought it was good, instead it was tainted. 
It came from a bad heart. You see, the gospel message truly brings a humility in our hearts so that he exalts us because he doesn't leave us in this lowly state. He doesn't leave us in the grave. He doesn't leave us on the other side uh, of of the enemy lines. He doesn't leave us um, in those places. No, he instead does these things because the gospel also declares to us that we've been made alive in Ephesians 2, that we've been reconciled in Colossians 1, that we've been declared righteous in Romans 3, that we have been brought near by the blood of Jesus in Ephesians 2.13. And because of that, there's humility and honor for God's people because of the gospel. Aaron said it earlier, that the gospel, we can, we can approach God in humility because we are fully forgiven. The gospel provides for us that opportunity. And I want to just remind us that if you, if you look at all these words in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 1 and Romans 3 and elsewhere, all these words about being made alive, all these words about being reconciled, all these words about being declared righteous, about being brought near, they're all passive verbs. We're all the recipient of God's faithful action towards enemies and dead people and sinners. And he comes after us without any hesitation. And when we keep that in mind, does it not humble our hearts? That We didn't deserve the standing that we have before him. You see, the good news of humility assures us that we are in danger if we rely on ourselves to fix our own spiritual situation. And our assurance isn't in ourselves, for we have a spiritual problem with no human solution. And the humility that the gospel produces brings life to dead bones. It refreshes the spirit. That's what Proverbs 15 has told us. It brings refreshment to our souls. Why? Because we were created as dependent creatures. There's not ever been a creature that has been created that wasn't dependent upon its creator. And we, friends, are creatures of dependence. When we accept that, we will have gratitude for the one who fixed the problem with his power, assuring us of his ability to keep us in his grasp with a steadfast, promised love that will never change his mind about us, no matter how much sin we accumulate. That's humbling. So, Why do I say this is the way forward for us? Why do I say that this is the thing that we need? And and, and how is it that we can kind of become a humbled people, a gospel-humbled people? Finally, as we end, what would it look like for us to be saturated in the gospel? What would it look like for you to saturate your heart, to saturate your life, with the gospel. It would produce humility. But see, what kind of life does humility produce? Does it not produce dependence? Yes. But then how would we relate with each other? See, look, I got an email, several emails this week of someone that doesn't go to our church that's been watching live stream. So if you're watching, welcome in. We're so glad you're here. Um, they've been watch, watching live stream and they were, they were, they're, they're just really concerned about the state of the church Big C church, like all over the church because it's divided and it's, and it's distracted. I think we're more distracted than divided. Like we're, we're chasing after really good things, but, but, but is it rooted and centered in the gospel, in what God has done for us? Because if it is, we will chase and we will go into these things with a, with a humility 
and not a self-righteousness. How can we saturate ourselves in the gospel? Pick a topic lately, y'all, and we have the opportunity to engage with the salt and light which God has called us to with humility. When we disagree on things like police brutality and Black Lives Matter and looting and conspiracies and masks and spiritual gifts and finances and parenting and anything else under the sun that will hit us in the days to come, will we be people that engage them with the posture that says, you know, I have an opinion on this, but it might be wrong? Will we engage with that? Is that like a foreign concept? Because y'all just stopped. I don't even think y'all were breathing just for a moment. Can we, can we enter into all this with the posture that says, you know what, I have an opinion on this, but it could be wrong. Because and, 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 here's what happens if, that, if we can do that. We'll listen. We'll lead with questions. Um, we'll, 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 we'll quit judging predetermined, uh, on predetermined assumptions, and we'll just be curious about what God is doing in the other person about what God is forming through another perspective that maybe we disagree with. We become the people of gospel humility when we enter into conversations with that posture. If you look at your non-forgiving, unreconciled relationships, isn't the fact that you cannot forgive, that we will not um, overlook another's offense because of pride. Instead, that we may be fueled with gospel humility to hear, to read God's word, to find, not to find reasons to disagree or create an exception for ourselves, but to hear and listen and obey. You see, humility longs to be obedient to the scriptures, and pride takes the long route around obedience. Isn't that what we learn from Israel in the desert? The humility to listen to God saying to us things that we cannot do. Hey, we want you to practice hospitality. We want you to do the work of an evangelist. Those are both commands for all people. And you will say to me, but I'm not gifted in hospitality. But I'm not gifted as an evangelist. It's a command. May we not hear the scriptures and somehow sidestep it. Do a little juke around the truth that God wants us to wrap our lives around. But perhaps God has something better for us that we cannot see with our own eyes. And so he wants to create in us an opportunity for dependence, create in us an opportunity for humility, create in us an opportunity for prayer and for the power of God to be worked out in our weakness. What would it look like for us to live this way? What would it look like for us to love this way? To go, man, that person offended me, but I'm going to go bless them with X, Y, or Z. Isn't that what the scriptures say? To bless those who persecute you? To love your enemy? First thing we probably need to do is not categorize other Christians as our enemy. Because the enemy doesn't have flesh and blood. The enemy is, is, is seated high, but not high, higher than Jesus. He's, he is a principality and a power, but not higher than King Jesus. Right? This is what dependence looks like and, and humility and, and obedience, especially when it's not comfortable. So I just wonder what it looks like for us that we would not base our relationships on political or skin color, 
but instead seek peace through reconciliation of forgiveness, of understanding, rooted in the reality that when we realize that the only one, y'all listen now, gospel humility, good news, refreshing the bones, I'm finishing up, hang tight with me, here we go. Realize, y'all, that the humility that comes will come when we realize the only one who had the right to keep us afar, to destroy us as enemies, to leave us in our well-deserved plight as sinners with no solution, as, as of being separated from God without hope. He did not leave us in that place. He did not forsake us because we were sinful. He will never leave us, never forsake us. He didn't look at our issues, which we created and go, you know, you probably deserve that. We, he knows we deserved it and he fixed it for us anyways. He didn't look at us and go, well, you reap what you sow. I mean, it is what it is. He didn't, he didn't leave us as poor, but instead for our sake became poor. He didn't leave us as a homeless people, but instead prepares for us a room. He didn't leave us as orphans, but y'all, y'all. He invited us to the banquet table of the wedding feast of the Lamb where we get to eat forever at the king's table with our brothers and sisters that we find hard to forgive. Jesus looks at him and goes, but I've forgiven him, so cannot you. It's at that table, y'all. That's the table that's set before us. That's the table that's set before us in eternity that says, this is coming. Will we live for that table or will we make, exclu make exclusions around our own table? See, God is calling us to be humble. And perhaps, like me, in order to live that life, the first thing that he must do for us is humble us. By the good news, we can't fix our own issues. Instead, God came for us, loves us, selected us, purchased us, and now literally holds us in his grasp for all of eternity that no one can be snatched out of the powerful and yet tender hand of Jesus. Let that be a humbling reminder that would fuel gratitude, that would fuel a love that covers multitude of sins, that would fuel for us a patience that only the Spirit can produce in us. And as we think about what that looks like for us, we're going to celebrate communion for the first time. As the Grove Church, and, and you might think to yourself, well, I don't see any tables situated. That's okay. What we're going to do is we're going to have three of our deacons come around, and they're going to hand sanitize so they'll be all clean for you. And then they're going to come and deliver for you a prepackaged individual Lunchable, uh, which is not my joke. It was Bethany's joke, and so there you go. Uh, but, uh, so like, but it's a lunchable of communion, of, of, of cracker and juice. We don't have wine. And there's also a gluten-free cracker. So if you need gluten-free, there's a separate cracker for you um, and some juice. And so I'm, I'm preparing us now because that's the picture. When we sit around the table and we, we take the elements in just a few moments, it's a picture of what God's preparing for us. It's a picture of what God has done for us. And it's a picture of what God is preparing for us that we would sit with people in eternity closer. We'll be able to rub elbows. It'll be great. No masks. It'll be not a world that's fallen and corrupt by sin, but a place where we can enjoy God as, we, as he intended. We can enjoy one another without the stain of sin, our own and another's. So I'm gonna pray. And the band's gonna come up and they're gonna play a song for us 
And as they're playing, my, my, my prayer for us is that we would just spend this time, yes, getting ready for communion, but the best way to, to get ready for communion, 1 Corinthians 11 would say, would be to discern the body. That's not just our own body, but how we have acted in the body. And many of us, we haven't acted at all with the body. We've, we've acted uh, with, with social representations of that online. But we do need to discern, right? We need to discern if there's anything in us that we need to repent of, confess. We need to discern if we've offended or been offensive to others. And we need to discern what it is that the Lord is calling us into in humility in this next season. So as they get ready to play and as they get ready to hand out, would you just kind of just get with the Lord and ask the Lord, what offensive way is in me that I may repent, that I may bring it before you, and that we may celebrate with a new and renewed gratitude before him? Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you. We need you. We don't want to live this life without you. We want to, we want to, we want to wrap our lives around you instead of making exceptions and excuses around preferences and sensibilities. We want to see God's word as holy, as inspired, as, as, as sourced in the holiness of God, of the righteousness of God, perfect in all of its ways, just like you are. And when we read things we disagree with or when we shelve it and we don't want to read it, Lord, help us see this is a spiritual attack on our souls. Help us see that we are called to be united in with you in spirit, to be in step and in walk with the spirit. And so help us, oh Lord. Help us follow you. Help us discern your ways. Help us repent where necessary. Holy Spirit, counsel, comfort, convict as you see fit. We yield to you. We yield to you, Lord. We need new hearts with refreshed chambers in our hearts so that it, life can work the way that you intended the breath of your spirit. May we long for that. May we, may we seek your presence like a thirsty animal. We're just panting and longing after you. We do so in humility and in gratitude that you will hear our prayers. May we run to you now. May we, may we find our only hope in you. And as we prepare for communion, Lord, help us. Help us see any offensive ways in us against our brothers and sisters, but ultimately, Lord, against you. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.